So welcome everyone uh, to this uh, reading club, the first one that we actually live stream. Uh, we hope it all goes well. Uh, and if it ends in disaster, this will be the last time we do this. Um, it's Thursday, the 1st of April. Uh, thank you, patrons, for, for joining us. Thank you for your interest in this. So this is the first of three, I guess, that concern the European Union. And it's three uh, readings written by Perry Anderson, uh, the, the historian um, who uh, always comes accompanied with a thesaurus, quite famously. Um, and there was a couple of words in here we had to look up, or at least I had to look up as I went along. But, you know, they were. They, 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 it's always good. It's always educational in that regard. Um, and I do think you always learn something from Perry Anderson, um, not just in terms of learning new words, but uh, a different take on something. So a little bit of history that he digs up from somewhere, uh, traces the lineage or the genealogy of an idea or of a person, uh, which he does here, actually, and kind of goes uh, pursuing different, uh, different authors, different thinkers uh, from the 15th century all the way up to today. Um, so, you know, an educational sort of reading, even if you don't take very much from the central point. But I, I think we do take quite a lot from uh, the central point of this. Um, I haven't brought in Phil and George, I guess. And for listeners, Phil and George are here. Um, for viewers, uh, well, you can see them. Um, you can say hi now. Hi now. Thanks. Can... I learned an, I learned a new word today as well, vamping, which you were doing there really well, Alex. So thank uh, you. Thank you. There we go. Um, yeah, maybe we, maybe we should have a, a glossary of, uh, of Perry, Perry Anderson words uh, available at the end of this. But anyway, um, so let me just say a little bit about the text. Um, before we go straight into it, uh, we're going to have a, a neat one hour of this. We're not going to go any longer. As I said, there's two other essays which have been published recently by Perry Anderson on the EU. So we're not going to do the whole EU, what do you think about it <laughs> thing here. We're going to stick to the text, uh, as you should do in a reading club. Um, so firstly, uh, this text is a reading of uh, Luc van Middelaar, a Dutch scholar and erstwhile Mandarin as well. Uh, why is he important and why does Perry Anderson select him and select his book, uh, his very much eulogized book, to talk about? And I think what comes through cl quite clearly, although, you know, Perry Anderson isn't explicit about it, is that he is a guy who kind of encapsulates the EU, both his approach, his analysis, um, his uh kind of life course, I guess, in his political career is in some ways very close to the nucleus of what Anderson thinks the EU is um, in terms of a body which emphasizes consensus, which emphasizes politics, first of all, but which is a politics without the people, uh, something that we've discussed uh, to great extent on this podcast, um, but also something that comes through um, a bit more implicitly in this reading. And it's also why we're not maybe going to talk about it too much. We'll obviously talk about the void between people and politics quite a lot. And the EU is a great representative of that. Um, we're going to try to maybe takes a little bit more of a bird's eye view on this in the same way that Perry Anderson does uh, in the text. One way of doing that is through the theme of realism, um, or the approach of, of realism. Uh, this is very much both Van Middelaar's approach and Perry Anderson's reading of Van Middelaar uh, emphasize sort of realism, or at least a certain, um, yeah, not a, not a critical reading based on certain ideals or based on the standpoint of the people or the proletariat or whoever, but it's looking at how Europe was really constructed and who did the constructing without too much uh, quibbles or, or moralism about, you know, democratic legitimacy. 
those are silly things to consider, uh, really. We, when we're talking about modern princes, the modern princes of Europe, um, of which Luke van Middler seems to be one, or at least he's a conciliary to a prince. Anyway, we're going to get on to all this um, in just a second. Firstly, to bring in uh, Phil and George, it's one thing which is interesting of note in this is that, and to locate this his discussion historically, is that Anderson, uh, he notes that Europe only really emerges as a distinct continental preoccupation after the end of the Cold War, and then with the rise of the new powers. So how, does, how significant do we think this is? Um, that, you know, Europe previously to that was a Europe which was divided between East and West, um, was the center of the imperialist powers even before that, and therefore Europe in some sense was the world. Europe then, as of the end of the Cold War, comes to take on a more, uh, maybe a more particularist understanding of itself as being, ah, yeah, we're Europe, but there's this whole other world out there. So what do we, Europe, want to be? What do we want to do? What do we think about this? Sorry, I'm, I was enjoying, a, I'm enjoying the comments in the there. chat. So I was, um, yeah, I was, uh, I guess, uh, let me just think about your uh, question, Alex. Um, no, I think it's true. What a pro, <laughs> what a pro. Go on, go on. <laughs> I think it's true. Um, okay, look, just for the record, I have to respond to what people are saying in the chat. I do have more hair than both Alex and George, just for the viewers and the listeners. I don't have it at the moment because of lockdown. I had to shave my own head. But normally I had more hair and I'm much better looking than them, you know? So we're not actually physically morphing into each other. Now they've got out of the way. So to I say, will never have Alex a goatee. I will goatee. never have a goatee. Just want to be absolutely No, I think anyway, to, be, to be fair, I think, yeah, you look, you look better with that one. I think the handlebar, the tash, the power of the tash suits you. Anyway. So, with you respect you to the people are going to make more comments on on our appearance now that you've <laughs> risen to it, so that's fine. Though. Anyway, anyway, in response to Alex's question, yes, I mean, yeah, broadly thinking, I mean, I think there's um, he's right that he describes a kind of uh, this introversion that occurs in terms of European debate, and I think I'm even kind of old enough to you know just about be conscious of its um, emergence. But talking about Europe in these very kind of introspective and self-conscious terms, um, that it does erupt at the end of the Cold War over the course of the 1990s, the late 90s, the early 2000s, and particularly though he doesn't mention this so much, but with respect to the um, with respect to the disintegration of Yugoslavia in particular, um, in the 1990s in particular, which um, so I do, I mean I do distinctly remember that even though I was young at the time, and that's not to say it's the first time it happened, but it does. It does begin, um, or it does um, reemerge um, after the end of the Cold War. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree. Um, there's a good paper on this: the idea of Europe and the origin of the European Union by Richard Swedberg or Swedborg, which goes through all these different kind of um, iterations of the meaning of Europe. Um, and I think it's just useful to obviously make the, the somewhat obvious point that the EU and the idea of Europe are not, not the same thing. But tracing this kind of Europe as a word with a, a distinct etymology, geographical concept, concept in mythology, um, attempts to kind of unify Europe through Charlemagne, through Napoleon, um, kind of the, the interesting points, though, I think, are the in terms of this history of the idea of Europe is how it's premised or it, it in its modern form arises at the same time that you have the emergence of all these all these nations which go on to constitute Europe. So the idea of Europe as a kind of trans or supranational idea 
as counterposed to all these national ideas. It's, the relationship is, is already a lot more complicated than that because the, the idea of Europe is premised on that kind of geographical and um, political unit of the nation state. So, yeah, but I think, Alex, what was your what was your original question before we got distracted? No, no, I mean, well, the, the, the appearances, the point... we want to get to essences of the. Euro yeah, no, I, ju I just want to situate it historically hosts. that there's that there's a moment uh, in Europe where Europe stops being just the globe where, you know, it's the only place that matters. Um, there's a sort of decentering in a way of Europe, which makes Eurocrats uh, and people be and believers in the European ideal have to think about what it actually uh, entails what does it consist of is it you know enlightenment values is it being white is it being you know whatever so uh, as a consequence they have to develop this sort of statecraft which seems appropriate to the european being which is maybe about consensus about liberalism as against whatever the u.s is cast as a bunch of gun-toting rednecks and that europe is more sophisticated and more peaceful or whatever anyway so i just want to kind of situate that because it might be something that we want to refer back to as we go along um the other touchstone, before we actually get into the text, is realism. Um, and, uh, you know, often we discuss, uh, you know, in terms of a, discussing a polity, whether it has, pro uh, whether it promotes good or bad results, or if it acts in a good or bad way, or indeed if it's a just or an unjust order. Um, but often maybe a more realist eye on these things is important. And I'm going to bring in Phil here, who has a book out on E.H. Carr, uh, a famous realist scholar of, uh, well, I guess of international relations. Um, and we're going to be discussing Phil's book, um, The 20 Years Crisis, in, uh, in in a couple of weeks' time. So that's an episode to look forward to. But Phil, anyway, over to you. It's very it's very readable. It's a great Your book, name's not great Phil. Value. Great, great value for money. No, I'm just, thank I'm just you, plugging thank it. Thank you, George. Anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose it depends the way in which um, I suppose it depends on the way in which realism is understood and whether it's understood as a kind of and it's not really clear how he means it. So here he's talking about um, he means realism in the sense of the kind of in the, I guess the kind of the the basic sense, you know, kind of ruthless the ruthless use of power to achieve particular ends of guile and cunning um, of the willingness to use state power to kind of force, force results that even if they um, break, you know, go, go beyond the bounds of legality or legitimacy in order to achieve um, higher ends. And the fact that politics can never stray too far from hard questions of power. And so in that sense, um, you know, I mean, it is kind you know, I mean, um, it is very, yeah, it's very kind of basically realist. I suppose it depends how you understand it, though, in another sense. So if it's like this kind of um, continuous body of thought, this deep reservoir of um, of kind of, you know, I don't know, wisdom about um, be of cunning and guile and kind of, um, you know, the kind, I don't know. I mean, it, it can kind of easily slide into a kind of Game of Thrones vision of politics where it's all intrigue and backstabbing. Or if it's understood in in a different sense, um, as kind of cutting across different kinds of politics and that realism is something that is part of politics by its very nature rather than a kind of distinctive tradition unto itself. And I think from what I from what I get from the Anderson piece that um, the kind of tradition that Midler, when Midler belongs to, the main author that he discusses, is this kind of realism as deep reservoir of um, cunning and guile for manipulative statecraft 
Yeah, I mean, well, it's something which I guess, you know, is unburdened, or at least their own conception would be that it's unburdened with any lofty ideals, um, and that it sees power in a naked sense. Um, but of course, that has its own illusions as well. And we're going to talk about some of those illusions as we go along. Um, so g- getting into the text, or rather, yeah, let's get into the text. Basically, Luke van Middelaar uh, is characterized by Anderson as an organic intellectual of the EU. What do we take this to mean? Um, and in what ways, I guess, by extension, uh, you know, both as a person, as a, as a sort of policy Mandarin, as an intellectual, um, how does it come to embody or represent the EU? Um, what what are the features of Van Middelaar's life and career and writing that seem to kind of really get to the root of what the EU is? What what merits Anderson calling him an organic intellectual of the EU? Well, I think obviously the the idea of an organic intellectual comes from from Gramsci, um, and the I, I think it's not it's not insignificant that he's Dutch. So previously, as I was saying before we recorded, used to, used to live in um, in the Hague. And this is one of the kind of the, the centers of of Europeanness as defined by by the EU. There's a lot of a lot of flags um, <clears throat> of of different countries uh, all uh, flying alongside the the EU one. Um, <clears throat> and I think the the reason why he he chooses this this book to to dissect and to like to write I, I can't remember how many is it fifteen thousand words on it's a very long essay um, for essentially a book review. It's an extended reflection on this it's because this book received almost universal praise um it it's it was it is the self-conception of the eu and that i think is an important point around the organic intellectual both the background being um one of having the same social roots as the eu but also being able to articulate a uh, conception or self-conception of the eu that binds together some of its most important actors Yeah, very good. I mean, it, it, someone's made a joke about organic and free fair trade. Uh, it, um, organic and See, fair trade intellectuals. Those are the intellectuals we don't like, or I it, don't like. Well, I mean, I guess Luke van Middelaar would probably conceive of himself as a fair trade intellectual, as a sort of liberal conservative mm-hmm. in which uh, free trade is fair and, uh, you know, carries out, uh, follows a kind of a, an idea of du commerce, where, you know, commerce ends up making people better. Um, but actually, as we'll find... Um, Economics actually doesn't take a big role in this, um, and I th- maybe this fair, is a fair. Ex- fair exchange is no robbery anyway, so I mean, all all trade is fair trade mm, according yeah. to some conceptions. Exactly. Um, he's also, I mean, he and some of the other people spoken about in the piece are Dutch conservative liberals, and um, I would maybe argue that they are in some ways the archetypes of the EU. Um, in Anderson's terms, in their emphasis on consensus the need for secrecy in reaching consensus, and a sort of no-nonsense practicality about going about worldly affairs. Um, so do yeah. we, do we more buy than this that. idea? More, more than that. So, I mean, this and this, I can't believe it was there all the time, kind of staring me in the face. But, I mean, it's not just... Um, so it's a consociationalism as well, that kind of model of um, uh, democracy, which kind of legitimates people to get into the back room. And that's the purpose of democracy, essentially. So you kind of, um, they get the public imprimatur, they represent their interests, you have a whole bunch of parties, and then they get into the back room, the door shuts, and all the kind of the haggling and the intrigue and the deal-making takes place. And it's not just EU politics. I mean, it's um, political science itself. It's the model of political science. 
the idea that um, politics is essentially something for the specialists, um, something in which um, public interests and the public kind of take a remote role in, and that this is also, I mean, it's in the name, you know, of one of the leading political scientists, um, von Lippert, yeah? I mean, it's a Dutch name. And I couldn't believe that it was staring me right there in the face, you know, like he's the guy who's taught in comparative politics 101, in political science 101. And that is, of course, you know, the Dutch model is, in fact, like the dream of basic political science. So more than the EU. Well, yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, Anderson also references um, the fact that, the, you know, this sort of idea of um, of Dutch liberalism, I mean, taking going back as far as the kind of 16th, 17th century, uh, where, they, you know, th these were just uh, gentlemen uh, traders who didn't have to didn't have the, the, the kind of big heroic dreams of aristocrats, but nor did they have any plebs to deal with, you know, so it was just men of practical world affairs allowed to get on with it in their closed rooms uh, without much discussion. I think another aspect of, of I guess, the, the Dutchness of the EU is that the Dutch have emerged as the last hardcore Austerians. Even the Germans are, are more flexible on this matter than, than the Dutch are. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe that's the, the lens that we we're all looking for. Um, to move on from the, from the nationality question, though, um, and getting more deeply into uh, Anderson's reading of Van Middelaar's text, um, he discusses three strategies for creating a polity. Um, so I'm just going to recap what these are. The German, which is taken from 19th century romantic nationalism, where you have uh, an adherence to symbols that represent the people, uh, and you have a romantic attachment to those symbols, in the case of the EU being the, the flag, ode to joy, etc., etc. Uh, the Roman strategy, which is basically, does it produce good results for me, and particularly in terms of security and in terms of material economic benefits. Um, and the third strategy for, for creating and maintaining a polity is the Greek one, which is to give the people a voice. And now a voice does not mean a determining uh, a determining vote necessarily, in or and certainly not uh, protagonism in creating the polity, but a voice meaning more in the sense of a Greek chorus. That is to say, they're not the actor, they're the chorus. So they they, they play their part, they, they say their piece, but um, they're not really the determining actors, the determining protagonists in, in the play. So you've got these, these three strategies, German, Roman, and Greek. And the question is, to what extent has the EU succeeded in any of these strategies? Um, you could say arguably none of them, but anyway, but what do we think? Well, I think it's if it succeeded in any, it's obviously the German strategy that it's been most successful in. It's been able to produce a, a, a remarkably high level of spontaneous um, adherence and support um, for the EU as the, as the idea of Europe across the continent. Um, particularly amongst young people. So the symbols, um, the the practices, the kind of the ideas, those have been very successful. The Greek idea, I mean, you can ask the Greek people how 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 they feel, um, if they feel that they've been, um, maybe they have been the chorus rather than the actor, like wailing uh, a certain kind of, um, that they want a certain sort of course to happen. And then obviously Syriza and the EU saying, well, no, that's not happening. I mean, I think the, the, the kind of the split, the way that I read it at least is, and this is probably simplifying it a little bit, is that you have essentially the cultural, the economic or the political. Um, and I think the, the economic is an interesting one because clearly some groups do benefit from the EU, particularly German export capital, and some groups don't benefit um so that one is a little bit more complicated 
Um, and it doesn't really seem that the EU could... Um, maybe there, there's the rhetoric of being good for everybody, but clearly the, the material reality of being um, of being able to give uh, material benefits to, to everybody who signs up to this project is is not possible. I mean, I think the you know the the Greek ones are most interesting because that's where you'd expect the straightforward, like having a having a determining say in in the decisions which bind your political community to come in. And Van Middelaar has a particular um, gloss on that, which allows him to say, well. Even the even the Greek strategy of legitimation doesn't require you to have a, a to be a protagonist. You just have to be like watching. You just have to be a chorus. I think the um, so I would agree, tend to agree with George. I mean, I would never have imagined that the EU could have any kind of romantic attachment. I didn't think it was. I genuinely didn't think it was possible. I understood that people might support the EU, but until um, the backwash of Brexit. I never thought that it would be possible for um, there to be such a kind of deep and intense. Why not? Why not? Because I didn't think it was. I didn't think it was genuine, and I didn't think it existed. In fact, I think it was created in the back in the kind of response to Brexit in Britain, at least. Um, and I think the I just didn't believe that people felt kind of um, you know the blood stirring in their veins when they saw the blue and gold banner kind of waving, or if they heard "Ode to Joy." So, and even then, though, I think it's still different. It doesn't have any of the kind of, um, you know, it's camp. Um, if you see the kind of people with their faces painted blue and with gold stars on them and the silly costumes they wore to kind of pro-EU protests in Britain, even it's kind of, it's the same kind of carnivalesque politics of protest. It isn't quite the austere and stern um, and, um, you know, it doesn't have any of the kind of intensity and menace I don't think of, um, I mean, it is menacing, but it doesn't have that kind of seriousness of 19th century romantic nationalism. Yeah, I, I, it's, more I, Euro, it's more Eurovision than 19th century. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which, which is actually the, the best thing about Europe. It's not even the EU, though. It's the European Broadcasting Union. So anyway. I'm sorry, I, as much as I dislike the EU, I'm going to have to to disagree with you on that one. But that's for, that's for aesthetic reasons. Yeah. Yeah, Except for Abba. Your, no, your no, vision, no. your vision is great. Anyway, the uh, I, I I disagree with George that I don't think the the uh, the German strategy has has really worked at all because the fact is is that the Europeans don't really have very strong allegiance to the EU when push comes to shove, um, and the symbols and whatever, especially at the at the symbolic level, I think that's really flimsy because people don't really wave European flags again, other than the the sort of camp response which provoked by Brexit, you know. The, the whole point is that it took Brexit for uh, liberals to performatively uh, show their adherence to the EU. Before that, there was none. So I don't buy that, though I do think in some ways, I mean, the, the, the Roman one has some basis to it insofar as you not just the, the kind of free travel across borders, which is a, definitely a clear benefit, but it's obviously limited to people who, or, or you know, only really counts for those people who travel quite a lot across borders, i.e. Uh, the better off and better connected people um, of Europe. Um, and whether, but then, you know, in a more fundamental sense, whether it produces good results, you could say that, you know, the EU and specifically the euro has not produced growth. I mean, it's not, it's not uh, generated the sort of dynamism that uh, the builders of European integration had promised. Um, it didn't, you know, that supposedly all these efficiencies where you get um, a much, you know, a European wide division of labor, uh, which becomes, a, you know, promotes growth, has a promotes economic efficiency, productivity, and so on, uh, hasn't really been, hasn't really 
been realized. So in that fundamental sense, it hasn't. I think the Greek one's the most intriguing because, you know, the, precisely because that is one where, you know, basically put it this way, if you're going to, if you're going to um, be critical of, you know, bourgeois democracy, it's the fact that it reduces the people just to a chorus, that you go and you vote for the parties that already exist, but it's not really uh, a fulsome democracy because you're not the main actor. You go and you cast your vote every four or five years and that's it. And so th- that is the voice of, of the chorus and that's about it. Um, the EU, of course, takes this to, to a level which it, where the, the, the voice of citizens is reduced to, to an even smaller level than, you know, than, than one might be critical of, of bourgeois democracy for doing. Um, yeah, I mean, I would have a, a sort of a more general point on, I think each of the, just a, a quick one before we before we move on, I think each of these three strategies of legitimation see the EU as a positive project, and that is what Van Midlar is really keen to put forward. But actually, I don't really see it that way. I think it is a negative project. It's defined way more by the elites or some aspects of the PMC um, retreating from the nation and showing their their their. Uh, fear of horror of um, the nation and the domestic working classes so it doesn't like I, you can see why it would have such a, an appeal to pro-eu people this this book and this the way of laying it out because it does say look we have all these different options there are so many things open to us in our positive project but i think it misreads what the eu is about yeah okay so i mean in terms of legitimation or maybe probably its opposite uh we have to discuss the coup of course it's in the title um and it actually takes a little while to emerge i i kind of like how anderson does that he kind of brings in these hints at the fact that well van middelaar seems to be saying and, and glorifying those uh who you know i think as he says that you know the 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 coup as the courageous founding act of positive statecraft it is prepared out of sight behind closed doors whose blade precludes consent what it depends on is surprise so what do we think of van Midler's depiction of the construction of the eu um as proceeding through these not grand coups um and certainly not military coups but really through banal procedural acts which um suddenly make you know the eu into a reality um what do we think it, of that depiction yeah it would it would appeal to his target reader which is uh, yeah. a not very charismatic eu bureaucrat who sees themselves as the potential next uh, coup coordinator not even like coup leader just um knows their process and can can somehow strike some some blow in favor of the eu so you can you know you can see i mean it's it's, it's still quite daring that he's saying like this is the way that you should uh, create a political like um, project but yeah i think it's it's playing to his target reader yeah i think the um the idea of this it's deeply appealing to i mean it's deeply i mean pmc has been mentioned in the chat with the viewers and i think that's right it's deeply appealing to a kind of PMC mentality, um, arcane mastery of kind of institutional procedure, which can be manipulated um, in order to kind of shove the European Union forward. And that that is an accurate, I think it is an accurate account of um, the kind of core moments they mentioned when Craxi kind of, um, in, in, uh, the Italian politician Craxi in the 1990s, kind of he, fought, he pushed Maastricht forward through um, a procedural coup, and that this made the European Union a reality. And I think that is essentially the way it proceeds. It's not dissimilar, in fact, to the um, to the kind of attempt to build a transfer union at the moment, to um, to give some kind of fiscal um, 
solidity to the EU. And again, it's proceeding essentially through procedural decisions in Brussels that um, mean that the that there is no national parliamentary oversight over what's happening at the supranational level with the formation of a budget. So it is an accurate account of the way in which it um, moves through these kinds of um, gerrymandering treaties and sleights of hand with negotiations between civil servants and governments. I, I do like how he manages to sort of dramatize it. I mean, he being Luke van Middelaar, or at least Perry Anderson, reading of him, because I haven't read van Middelaar directly. Um, he may. He, it is correct, I think, in insofar as you know, you're comparing the EU to the construction of nations and nation states, that it does often take these sorts of. I don't know if sleight of hand is the right way to put it, but the fact is, is that. It's not for all that it is the represented the the represented the people who select the representatives. It is historically usually been certainly in terms of nation building the representatives the elites who create the represented right. So basically that you have the, the formation of nations isn't an organic spontaneous process coming from the people, um, but it's a, it's something that has been created by nations have been created by states from top down very often. So um, I think in recognizing that the that this has happened to some degree with the with the EU, I don't think that necessarily brings the EU legitimacy that much into question. I mean, I'm here maybe Phil and George will disagree with me, but I also think that, you know, if you had been able to create a European nation, a European demos from the top down, as had been done, uh, you know, with, with France in the, in the 18th century, uh, Germany and Italy in the 19th century and others even later on than that, um, you know, you, you could, that could be, the, that could be not necessarily basis for legitimacy, but if you have a democratic structure of government, after that, I think it can then be legitimate, even if its original founding wasn't based on any democratic legitimacy, because that's what all states have been. That's what all nation states have been, um, or nearly all of them, I suppose. Um, some, I guess, maybe have been formed through a sort of revolutionary break, so it is more bottom up. Um, so, I mean, I guess my point... But I think that's the important point, right? Because it's not a nation state and it never can be. Um, and maybe this is what, what one midler, you know, kind of um, doesn't understand is that once you kind of prior to a, um, a modern kind of constitutional political order, you can have kind of founders in the um, kind of world historic um, sense that he he means. But once you have an institutionalized kind of national political system, the idea of um, these Coomongers kind of acting as founders can only be um, regressive um, and anti-democratic. It can only kind of disintegrate and hollow out what's there and it can't actually create. And I suppose that's where he doesn't, you know, that's what is beyond him. That um, even though they've been able to build these kind of rickety super state structures on top, they're not able, like you say, to build a demos at the end of the day. So the coups don't create new nations in the way that arguably such kind of, um, you know, such kind of innovations did actually create nations in the past. Yeah, and which, which again, goes against, I mean, I think recognizing that is a better way of going about it than the conservative, often the kind of conservative nationalist complaint that like, well, the EU isn't a real nation. And, you know, these other things are, you know, Germany or France or whatever is a real nation. I think, you know, we have to accept the the founding illegitimacy of any nation, 
but you know the question is then is it democratic and is it a real uh, is it a real nation state after that and, and I agree with Phil yeah. that it's not the, the, what's funny about it is that Van Midlar tries to dramatize something that really is quite banal um, at the level of kind of these procedural coups and this relates to the notion of, uh, of an aesthetic politics which uh, is the I guess uh, Luke Van Midlar's teacher uh, Anker Smith uh, he has this idea of aesthetic politics which differs from what we'd normally understand as from aestheticized politics, which has a very close relationship to fascism. Um, whereas here, it's sort of this liberal conservative um, means of creating a, a, a sort of a, a, a polity, really, um, a unit in which people can find compromises in which they're understood to be legitimate. So it's kind of a... It's an aesthetic politics, but without drama, right? You know, fascism. <laughs> say what you like about fascism. Uh, at least it was dramatic, um, and and this version of it uh, very much isn't. And yet, and to, so this is to to bring us forward a little bit. Um, th- that banality of the EU suddenly did become dramatic, and it became dramatic. Uh, and this is Anderson saying this in the text that uh, you know the global financial crisis, the Euro crisis, uh, Russia's uh, you know invasion of, U- of Ukraine, uh, the migration crisis. Uh, and then Trump and Brexit uh, really did seem to introduce the drama necessary to make EU politics work, at least on in the aesthetic terms that Van Middelaar, uh, you know, seeks. So you have all this European construction happening at an elite level through these kind of procedural coups, uh, which turn the EU into a real thing. Um, and then therefore, we uh, as, as citizens of Europe should then be entertained as spectators. And so you have this drama. So maybe now this thing works. Um, but, but why, it wasn't, why doesn't it? Wasn't, it? But it was, I don't think it was exactly yeah. that. So it was the idea from what I understood of Anderson's reconstruction of all of this. It was aesthetic in the sense of um, that it's um, it intro- it's not a actual, unlike the Rousseauian sense, it's not actually representation through resemblance. So it doesn't have to resemble what is being represented in this case, any kind of democratic um people or constituency rather it represents or it becomes aesthetic in the sense of it's something new in the way that a painting is its own thing it's not um like just a straightforward depiction of a landscape or whatever it's depicting it's something new unto itself and it has its own kind of um it's uh, it can be appreciated its on logic. its own terms yeah exactly it's- and that's what the european union is according in this in this in this vein of reasoning so to that extent it's aesthetic and you know to that extent it does have an aesthetic it has an aesthetic of all of its institutions how they relate to each other the multiple presidencies the intricate kind of organograms of you know how the council relates to this body to the ecj to this no no one gets no one gets angry no one fights you know everything's consensually yeah it has it has an aesthetic but it's not the aesthetic of grand world history and drama it's, it's, the, it's a very the, bourgeois the, the yeah yeah the banality of eu-ville yeah evil eu-ville EU yeah i mean but that's that's i think that's the point that you need to have a a non-representational logic of, of politics um because that's the you know that's the weakest point of of the eu um in terms of comparing it to other political structures or processes because that that the demos doesn't exist the representational structures don't exist the kind of conflict over over interests that's not the sort of politics that the eu that the eu does so there has to be another way of just describing um and accounting for 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 what goes on and i think that there is a point about the the i don't know exactly how to put this but you don't 
if I were um, very, if I were very much in favour of or worked for were employed by the EU directly or indirectly, I don't think it would be necessarily a good thing for the EU to be in the news. Um, I don't think it's it isn't a politics of like of of, of reforming society, of changing things. It's a it's a much slower. The, the the aesthetics are one of you know that classic perhaps liberal account of you know ever closer union ever more kind of developed and um, prosperous economies so things moving slowly and gradually is much better than newsworthy stories I would say from the point of view of the EU yeah I mean that's that is the thing and then suddenly things accelerate and this is a point which is made in the text that there is this transition from the politics of rule to the politics of events um, which curiously. Uh, ended up not necessarily politicizing the inner workings of the EU, at least, you know, what, what Van Mindler refers to the inner circle, um, because actually what, what you, you'd think that suddenly this high drama would make European politics exciting and would politicize it, um, having to do with these big things, no longer, you know, as the kind of British stereotype has it, ruling on what the, the, the curvature of a banana should be, but actually having to deal with something like the Ukraine crisis or the Euro crisis or whatever. Um, actually, what it did, it shifted this boring, you know, banal rules-based politics into the politics of events, which actually is emergency politics, which, uh, as we're finding out now, obviously with the pandemic, um, doesn't necessarily create space for the debate the debate of alternatives and uh, the clash of oppositions and so on. Um, it's, you know, things done off the hoof and what the the ruler says goes. So I think that that's kind of an interesting observation. One last question here, just before uh, we respond to all your questions, uh, listeners and viewers, um, which is Van Middelaar's strategy in remedying this question and, you know, what's called, uh, I guess, euphemistically, the democratic deficit in the EU, which is to introduce a little bit of dissensus so as to make the union function a bit better. Um, so obviously this does not mean uh, the sort of dissensus of Brexit, where a country breaks away, but to maintain the the basic structures of the EU and introduce a little bit more dissensus, a little bit more opposition, conflict, and so on, to liven the politics, to politicize it, um, and thereby make it function better. So, you know, it sounds like a great idea. Um, how likely do we think the, uh, Euro elites will uh, will be able to actually realize this uh, if they were to sign up to this sort of idea? How do you think? How well do you think they'd be able to realize it? I think the key the key to it is what's meant by dissensus. Dissensus not being a very, you know, commonly used word, at least in my um in my life. Um and you know, what is dissensus? It's 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 um dissent within certain consensual boundaries. So it's a very much a manufactured yeah, you used to have manufacturing consent, now you have manufacturing dissent. You have a you have to have certain um frames within which that disagreement is allowed and that you know it's, it's quite an old an old strategy isn't it obviously to to say look this this kind of dialogue or these people disagreeing goes some way to to legitimate this this project this this thing whatever it is because people are able to freely express their um their criticisms but of course the key thing is what those boundaries are and you know i think brexit or if we have italexit or whatever else any question of actually leaving the eu and, and actually threatening the the overarching legitimacy of the of the um, the formation is outside of the bounds of of what of what the um elites would want and so therefore it seems to me to be a potentially a, uh, an attractive strategy but i don't think 
you know very com very very compelling or likely to succeed one because the boundaries of of what that dissensus could could lie within would will necessarily be quite narrow yeah and then they were not going to be able to find an agreement on what on how politics should polarize um if they try to do that um, I don't think that that really happens. And of course, they probably don't want anything to really be at stake. So, you know, trying to make the mm. European Parliament a little bit more exciting um, also, you know, is not going to enthuse citizens anyway. Um, so, uh, right, let's take, let's move on to, to your questions, people. Uh, thank you for them. Um, and obviously, you know, feel free to keep them coming. We're going to try to deal with as much as we can in the next sort of 20, 25 minutes. Um, I'm going to take John Kennedy's question, which he posted on Patreon, uh, as that was first, that was earlier. So we'll start with that. Um, he notes that um, that Van Middelaar, um, or Anderson's two main critiques of Van Middelaar, are that uh, Van Middelaar wrongly imputes to the European Union a genuine interest in fostering a European opposition, uh, and that he sees the beginnings of such an opposition where there's really nothing but Baudrillardian spectators, which is something that we've uh, we've discussed. Um, so what, what's happened is that opposition has been driven outside the EU, um, like, you know, with Brexit, where it's opposition to the EU rather than opposition uh, fighting it out within the EU. Um, so but what John wants to ask is, mightn't the Roman strategy effectively providing good stuff to people, um, both order and uh, material benefits, prove a more roadworthy strategy for the EU, um, especially for kind of uh, states in the east fearing Russian aggression and those in the uh, like smaller dependent European periphery states? I mean, in principle, but I mean, how does it do it? You know, I mean, it doesn't really, I mean, it doesn't really provide any kind of meaningful security for um, those states in the East that um, are concerned about um, about Russia. Um, it seriously kind of damaged the economic prospects of the Southern, you know, Southern kind of uh, tier of the European Union and many peripheral economies. It's you know, contributed to demographic collapse in certain Eastern European and Baltic countries. It's turned them inside out as a result of um, economic integration. And um, it hasn't really, if you look at the kind of the way in which it's um, struggled to provide any kind of economic cohesion or stimulus in the wake of the economic crises of the last 10 years, um, and now obviously suffering even worse as a result of the pandemic, it doesn't seem to be able to push through a Roman strategy in any kind of meaningful way. Yeah, exactly. And the, and the German thing, uh, obviously, as we or as we discussed, it's not going to have any have any buyers. No, no, I think the I mean, the, the um, again, to, you know, to kind of repeat the point, the I don't think it's about a positive project having to uh, legitimate itself as much as it's defined by that by and by a collection of of interrelated negative um, national projects or moving away from the nation. So, in all the the member states context, so I think there's a there's a there's always going to be a kind of a, a question or a, a concern that the EU has about its own legitimacy, but I don't think it's um, it's ever going to be able to successfully answer it and to a certain extent it doesn't need to because the 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 opposition to it will be necessarily grounded in in different national contexts yeah so uh let's let's take another sort of questions from the uh from the youtube stream um 
I'm just looking through these. Um, uh, William Rowe asked, does anybody, does anyone remember if these coups mentioned in the book were reported on it in the press much? They were totally new to me, but like many people, I'm bored to tears of EU news. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah, understandably, yeah. Yeah, it's a, so it's, a, it's an interesting question because, I mean, uh, I was too young for the Craxy thing. And I probably, you know, even if I hadn't been, I probably, who knows if it was um, uh, reported or not. But the, um, I mean, certainly the way in which um, European elites kind of had flanked the constitutional, the Treaty of Lisbon and smuggled in the, in response to the Dutch and French um, referenda in 2005 um, and then they kind of smuggled it back in through various procedures that was reported um, not not particularly widely or intensively in terms of what was going on but it was reported and some of it is very specific to particular newspapers like you know the Daily Telegraph in Britain at least the Daily Telegraph or the Times have like one or two kind of correspondents who know what they're talking about and to understand the European Union or like the Financial Times they've got Marine Khan um, who understands the European Union and is also not um, enraptured by it because so much of the press corps in Brussels, from what I can gather and from what I hear, is completely, um, you know, completely uh, pro-EU essentially without even having any kind of ability to ask tough questions or meaningful questions in the way, say, that the you know Washington press corps is. So, no, the short answer is it's not really widely reported and this is the way, I mean, and this is part of the way in which the EU functions. But also the way that if it were to be dramatized or to, I guess, put emphasis on its deeper meaning, you know, the, the deeper meaning of these procedural moves, like it would be to scream like they did, you know, they, they kind of pulled the wool over our eyes and they did this. But that tends to be uh, then kind of dismissed as kind of the raving, uh, the ravings of, of Eurosceptic lunatics and so on. So I think that's probably how that ended up happening. I mean, for, for anybody who was paying attention and actually cared about it and actually thought it was a bad thing, um, they were kind of very easily sidelined. And then for the rest, they fit into the other categories of not caring um, or actually being mm. in favor of it. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we talked about the, the aesthetics of the EU and, and the banality. And I think there is a, you know, that's the, uh, <clears throat> the, the, the way it, uh, the way it rolls. Um, so, just to, I'm, I'm skimming through the questions and ignoring the criticisms of all um, uh, comments on our, our appearance. Not criticisms; they're most mostly uh, quite positive. So, one point from Lawrence Dorman, who says, "I agree with Phil. Sitting here in France, I don't feel that people are romantically attached to the EU, especially not the young. Um, it was." Uh, that was what was so curious about watching Remain lose in the UK context lose its mind. So to return to that idea of the, um, I guess the, the German strategy, and that Van Middelaar, uh talks about, Phil, you have somebody who who agrees with you. Well, uh, I, um, I appreciated Lawrence. Though Red doesn't agree with me because he says over here in the Netherlands, the attachment to the EU seems very much romantic, being a nominally unpatriotic country which I thought was interesting as well. And I, you know, I mean, it might be, I mean, there might be a, a kind of an inverse relationship, you know, so maybe um, in Germany and in the Netherlands, there is kind of a more romantic attachment to the EU among, particularly among maybe uh, the middle classes. Whereas in Britain and France, um, you know, where there is kind of a stronger sense of national identity still um, and popular as well, then, you know, maybe it doesn't work so much. Yeah, I guess the 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 idea of romantic um, attachment is an is an interesting one, um, and I think 
I guess there is a distinction between the attachment to the EU prior to the Brexit referendum and the attachment afterwards. Um, and it doesn't seem perhaps particularly romantic to to go, um, I was going to say 180, but to change very radically the nature, the emotional register um, of, of the attachment. Previously, the democratic deficit, for example, was was quite often referred to by, by, by Remainers and afterwards it was that you can do no wrong. Um, but yeah, there's, yeah, I think it's, it's, it obviously varies country by country um, and for a whole range of reasons. I, 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 we have a question here, like specifically responding to this from Marek saying, isn't the point that the attachment is already so ingrained that no one feels the need to display it? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's an element to which the EU is very much taken for granted, um, which is also why maybe, you know, people uh, reacted even in Britain to, you know, the remain, uh, remain, excuse me, they responded in the way that they did to Brexit um, because this taken for grantedness was no longer there as a given that in terms of international travel or whatever, um, which, you know, people do benefit from and not just uh, the European elite um, that people. No, just the to, European elite. No, because people move to work in Britain and, you know, from from Italy or whatever. So they obviously benefit from that. Now, so no, I mean, sorry, in Britain. Yeah. Yeah. In Britain, it's overwhelmingly the kind of the idea of Europe as a kind of hinterland for, um, but, but for but, the middle class parts of the but, country. But that's anyway. precisely why Britain isn't a good example, you know, to discuss this yeah, from, sure. because it's uh, quite different elsewhere. Um, no, but I think I don't I don't I mean, I think I disagree with what Marek said, because um, I don't think it's so much, you know, it's so deeply embedded that it doesn't require that it doesn't need to be articulated, because I think the point was, I mean, or at least I think the point for kind of romantic identification it requires it needs to be reaffirmed and recreated you know which is why there's so much kind of, there's so many public rituals and symbols associated with with national identity that need to be they needs to be routinized and publicly affirmed kind of constantly so it's not something which can be taken for granted whereas and, and historical memory you, as well like the you know the, yeah, the memories of yeah. events and things which the eu doesn't really have that i mean no one's going to yeah. celebrate the lisbon yeah. treaty yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, I don't think it's so that it doesn't exist because it's so deeply buried. Um, I, I don't I don't think that I mean, it, it might be deeply buried, but I don't think that counts as a kind of romantic that that can function as a romantic identity in the same way that national identity can. Yeah, and I there's another question about yeah, um, dissent sounding. Should we take that? I wanted to take that. Go one. for it. Go for it. Um, from William Rowe, dissent sounding like very aesthetic. So this goes back to Van Midler's idea of kind of um, needing uh, a pressure valve, a safety valve, where you release some of the pressure, and but also in his conception that it's kind of an aesthetic thing. That so that the public, I suppose, would see the um, they would see um, dissent, and that would have in itself a kind of a reassuring, placating effect you see dissent being performed and therefore you feel kind of reassured that the system is functioning and that it's not covert or authoritarian in any way and i think that's true i think that probably you know that does sound like um an aesthetic idea of dissent does sound like the kind of model that he would have in mind and that the eu has tried to cultivate i suppose suppose unsuccessfully yeah there's um anderson references um as one of the uh epigraphs of the book a miles davis quote i'll play it first and tell you what it is later so there is this idea of like the um you know the great the great jazz piece needs some some dissensus needs some dissonance needs some kind of notes played 
played in unexpected ways in order to, in some ways, reaffirm the the coherence, the consensus, and the agreement of the the whole at a at a higher level, and an, and an, at an aesthetic in an aesthetic register as well, um, with Ode to Joy being um, the unofficial anthem as an attempt to manufacture romanticism, as as William Rowe has put in in the chat. Yeah, there is a, there is clearly a um, uh, an aesthetic dimension of this, and Ode to Joy is a good you know it's a good a good song. It's no uh champions league <laughs> i was gonna Greece. say that yeah like, but it's not bad <laughs> uh thanks for that gabriel uh, yeah that's right it's no it's no champions league themed song but um yeah also that would that would actually probably strike too much of a of a too much of a nationalistic and aggressive and, and militant note to be singing the champions um as being the european uh the european anthem um but yeah no i think that as, as to the the point about um about dissensus, yeah, and, and whether it's an aestheticized one. I think that would be, if the EU managed to do it, and it seems so unlikely just because it right now seems to be coming apart at the seams, that if it managed to introduce some form of politicization within some of its institutions to maybe transform the parliament to have a little bit more power, um, to create European trans-European political parties, that I will see it. it I'll believe it when I see it. I really don't believe that happening. Um but even then, I think it would be, again, in a way to sort of contain it and to give people their, you know, five minute rage or whatever you call it, where you're allowed to just uh, expend all this sort of uh, libidinal energy and frustration that you have and then go back home. And then this would be celebrated by the likes of Van Middelaar as this, uh, you know, um, smart, intelligent, clever, devious coup, which has uh, brought the people back into Europe, brought in, 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 made people enamored with European politics again without ever really changing anything. In fact, what it reminds me most of um, is the leopard, right? Uh, you know, everything has to change so that things may stay the same. And that's probably a little bit the idea of, uh, of Van Middelaar's of introducing a little bit of dissensus just to keep the cohesiveness of the whole uh, and, and keeping consensus basically as the dominant theme of, of the EU. A little, a little bit of dissensus for a treat. Um, so we got we got five minutes left. I was going to say, should we five. take one more question and then wrap up? Let's I was going to suggest a five. I was going to suggest a five minute rage, just like, just, <laughs> or maybe four minutes or three minutes, and then we can get back to it. The final two. This is where we shout at Phil, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what? Final question. I think we we do have probably time for for one more. I mean, I'm I'm curious about what this uh, it, what, is. The EU, the Liberal Bilderberg Group, uh, with William. <laughs> Put. Is that is that ju- is that just a conspiracy theorizing? Isn't the, I mean, Bilder- isn't the Bilderberg Group liberal already? Well, I mean, yeah, but but it is right. I mean, if the Bilderberg Group kind of emerged out of the attempt, you know, all of these kind of um, uh, I don't know the forums, the kind of G seven, and all these groups that emerged in the nineteen seventies as a way of managing the disintegration of the post-war order and institution, you know, laying the infrastructure of what would become um, eventually neoliberalism by supplanting um, kind of formal intergovernmental organizations with new kind of technocratic working groups, meetings of financial ministers, um, interbank coordination, all of this stuff that emerged in that period. Um, 
which I think the Bilderberg Group is part of that kind of um, era, that it grew out of that era. Um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it did. And um, and I think the European Union, I mean, it didn't emerge, it didn't begin in the 1970s, um, but it was certainly shaped by that period. By the and I think it's um, you know it's uh, in terms of the way in which it's supposed to function, it does function yeah. very similarly. Yeah, and I think just to again to make a, a, a point, a more obvious one, but one that, that Anderson makes in the in the article, the coups are all you know they're all bloodless, they're all behind the scenes so to have an analogy with a with a, a group like a um who meet in in hotels or, or wherever or conference centers and and discuss things kind of behind closed doors is you know that is in some ways a more accurate um way to approach the eu than this kind of as, as alex referred to earlier this kind of classic conservative view that the eu is a super state that's straightening our bananas or or curving the bananas, whichever one you don't want, that's the one it's going to do. Um, so all of that is wrong because the Bilderberg Group, according to Wikipedia, started in 1954. <laughs> they, I, I'm not sure they were the first group um, and the first, like, um, uh, like any, yeah. So you can then be, be dismissed as... <laughs> I was going to warn you, don't, don't stray into anti-Semitic territory there, George. Like, no, no, you no, were no, the I'm first group the... to control the world. With... <laughs> I'm talking about capitalism. Typical, typical, George, you're not meant to let on that we're a Strasserite podcast, right? You know oh, that, that gosh. we're not supposed to be red-brown. You know, like, don't let on, you know, our actual views. Well, anyway, um, I, we should maybe leave this there. Um, of course, just to give us full cover, I'm a rootless cosmopolitan Judeo-Bolshevik and, uh, you know, could never go in for any anti-Semitism. So much so that I was actually pretty pro-EU uh, as a kid. And I and I did try to confect, at least within myself, some romantic attachment um, to this European ideal, which I felt was like a good idea. But, um, you know, not so much now because, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a bigger world out there um, and the EU is not democratic. So, you know. That that'll be enough to to puncture that uh, puncture that bubble. All right, people. Um, unless we have any last questions, uh, we, we do, but we should probably take them next time. We can. Uh, can okay. Them. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have to save that one for next time. Um, thank you though for for your questions. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this first uh, live reading club. Um, let us know what you thought, and uh, we'll be back again in one month with uh, more Perry Anderson on Europe, and uh, we'll be exploring, obviously, new themes uh, rather than recapping these old ones. Um, all right, so that's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining, guys. Bye.